0: Hey, everyone. I'm Dr. Kelly Starrett.
1: And I'm Juliette Starrett.
0: And you're listening to The Ready State Podcast.
1: This episode of The Ready State Podcast is brought to you by Element.
0: So check this out. That's L-M-N-T. You should think of yourself as a bioelectrical mechanical person. It means your whole body runs on an electric current, and that's driven by, wait for it, Salt. Salt. Yeah, 100%. Ever heard of the sodium ion channel? I never have. Well, that's how the whole system works, how your nervous system works. So it's not an accident that there was this thing called the salt trade, the salt routes. That person is worth their salt. I wonder where that comes from. You know where it comes from? Salt. Yeah. We used to have people show up at the gym and they were sucking and we would give them a little bit of salt underneath their tongue and they would come back to life like Lazarus.
1: You also know that feeling at like four in the afternoon when you're at work and you think you need a cappuccino or a bunch of chocolate. Maybe what you really need (laughs) is actually salt.
0: You need salty chocolate.
1: And like super tasty salt.
0: Yeah. The kids at Element have created, I think is like the salt lick for humans, but in like less weird deer form. There's not like a block. Our daughters have been experimenting with this, and I actually i think you should do it too. Before a big workout effort, go ahead and just pound some salt. Get some LMNT in a glass of water, eight ounces. It can be strong. You don't have to drink a gallon of water to make this thing work. And I guarantee you you're going to feel better and perform better.
1: And we also literally eat at least one packet of LMNT a day. We love it so yeah. much in our household. We're literally drinking it every day. If you want to get some Element, right now you can order a sample pack for just the price of shipping, which is $5 in the U.S. Their sample packs include eight packets, so you can try each of their eight flavors. Go to the readystate.com slash free Element, that's free L-M-N-T, to check it out. This may sound crazy, but last year, I kind of tried to clone my husband. Awesome. Only kind of, though. You see, Kelly gets dozens of requests every day for help. And even though he wants to give everyone his personal attention, there just aren't enough hours in the day. So I typed in how to clone a human being into Google. Just kidding, but in seriousness, what we did do was create our virtual mobility coach platform. It's like having a virtual Kelly Star ad in your pocket.
0: Which obviously everyone needs. I mean, that's right. I personally create over 600 mobility protocols for the virtual mobility coach. So the platform can help you with almost any movement problem imaginable. For example, let's say you're in pain. The VMC will show you a diagram of the human body. All you have to do is click where it hurts, and from there, we'll serve you up a customized pain prescription we call Mobility Rx. The virtual mobility coach can also help you warm up and cool down when you exercise. Every day, we provide fresh pre- and post-workout mobilizations for more than four dozen sports and movements. Plus, on your days off, we even have a video called Daily Maintenance to help you relax and recover so you can get back 100% in record time.
1: Best of all, right now you can try Virtual Mobility Coach free for two whole weeks. So you can check out everything it has to offer without paying a penny. Claim your free 14-day trial of Virtual Mobility Coach now. Go to com slash free trial. That's com slash free trial. And we'll see you inside.
0: On this episode of the Ready State Podcast, we have the incredible thinker and writer, Christopher McDougall. It can easily feel like sometimes I've set up the ready state with my wife just so I can get to know some of my personal heroes. And Chris McDougall absolutely falls into one of those categories of a person I idolize and try to emulate a lot in many aspects of his life. You know, Chris is a former war correspondent and author of a book that really changed my life called Born to Run. It's actually the most popular book ever written about the sport of running, which is crazy. But also... It's hard to believe that that book is 10 years old now. McDougall also explored the ancient art of the hero in one of my favorite books and Laird Hamilton's favorite books, Natural Born Heroes. It's incredible. Um, His last project, Running with Sherman, about the animal-human partnerships, which was really just a remarkable treatise about his family and his experience and this rehabilitation of this incredible, incredible donkey. He's currently on a new project in Hawaii involving, strangely, big waves, deep bruises, and, of course, the occasional shark. Uh, We were thrilled to catch up with Chris and his
2: amazing brain. Please enjoy our episode. The only thing I have to do this morning is go body surfing. So... That's it. The only thing on my schedule is Starrettes, Go to the beach,
0: everyone. That is our intro. Welcome to the Ready State Podcast, Chris, and thanks for rubbing a little uh, sea salt in the wounds. Welcome,
2: dude. Thank you so much. First of all, for two reasons. Number one, Juliet, I've never actually seen you before, so this is very cool.
1: I know. I feel the same way. You know, we started talking back in like the in like two thousand eight because remember we were trying to plan an event in San Francisco. So, we've known each other for a long time, but never actually laid eyes on each other. So, this is amazing.
0: Let me tee that up for everyone just because an event in San Francisco, it was going to be a, a like a happening secret run through the Presidio up to Golden Gate Bridge, and we weren't going to get a permit. That was the it was, was going to be too hard to organize yeah. that. So, we it was were like a flash it, mob, like a gorilla flash mob. Yeah. That's you were the first flash mob. So, that's how we started interacting the first time.
2: You know, you're lucky to find out what you missed because we actually did that in Boulder. And I was like that close to getting arrested. I had like a toe-to-toe with a park ranger with his hand on his pistol saying, (laughs) look, you know, either you disband or you're going to jail. I'm like, says who? Like the guy with his hand on the gun says who? Asshole. (laughs) jerk off. So, Juliet, you wisely avoided, you know, basically a standoff with San Francisco PD.
1: Well, it would have been fun. I'll say that much.
2: (laughs) Yeah, right. Okay, so
0: just so everyone understands, we'll get into this around running with sherman but you were living in pennsylvania in a different situation and now where are you currently because some something has changed in your life a little bit not wearing shirts body surfing where are you
2: before i even get to that sorry the burning thing on my mind and i told you guys i was going to lead off with this so my wife has been running a lot more building up to eight miles a day or so but her feet are chronically like nagging her not injury Annoyance, and she can't get over, can't get over. So I bought like my fifth copy of Ready to Run because I get them, and it's always like people come to me like, what should
1: you I just give it away? What should I do?
2: Read this, you know? Like I, I don't have any answers here. Read this. So I gave it to my wife who's seen it around the house forever. The next day, she's like, Oh my god, my feet are already sixty percent better. I'm like, oh, what'd you do? Is it the lacrosse ball? She's like, Drinking water, drinking water. And like, <laughs> and then she goes, You've always told me this, but I had to hear it in Kelly's words which is like not what any husband ever wants to hear. Like, yeah, yeah, you talk a lot, but I only listen when somebody else speaks up. And dude, it's unbelievable. So she has a giant like metal canister she drinks water from. I think the thing's like a half a gallon. She doubles up and it is miraculous. She says that her feet are so much better just from the water and nothing else.
0: Isn't that, you know, Um, one, we all we appreciate that an expert is someone who lives a mile away. That's always the case. Right, 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 right. And second, you know, it, I think you have been at the forefront of this strength and conditioning performance movement, functional movement revolution from, you know, Born to Run when you started writing that, but it really came out at just the genesis. The last 10 years of the world has been crazy. And it's easy to forget the things that make us feel safe, the things that build tolerance around sleep and movement and hydration, nutrition. It's just not very sexy sometimes. It's much more sexy to get a new pair of these carbon fiber Nike running shoes and talk about which gel you're running with, right? And I think sometimes we, we miss the force for the trees there. I love that, that that's where she started because it was an easy grab and it made some change. That's the, the point, experiment, end of one.
2: Yeah, well, I think the thing about it was however you laid the book out, she said this time, because she's, she's read it before, you know, but I think she, what she did in the past was, you know, I need this solution. She went right to whatever page was dealing with plantar fasciitis or something. This time she's going page to page, cover for cover, cover to cover. And I think water might have been like on page three or something. So as soon as she got there, stopped. Let me try this, which again, I think is also kind of cool because her approach was let's just be systematic. Let's start with simple and build the complex as opposed to like, Let's go to the nuclear option about a carbon fiber orthotic or something. (laughs) Anyway, man, where'd it go?
1: It's so amazing that she was able to, you know, I think often sometimes a simple solution is the solution, but everybody thinks they have to go to the nuclear option. So it's, I love that story. Thank you so much.
0: There's a, there's a person I'm kind of obsessed with right now, Ivan Ilyich, and he was a writer about sort of medical processes. And he really takes this view that we have injected, the need to see a doctor into our lives for things that should not ever need to see a doctor for, right? There's like we have completely just handed over our agency. And I'm not saying, look, I'm a big fan of physicians, obviously. But, you know, there are some things here that we have lost the curation and narrative about how to take care of ourselves as humans. And I think, you know, for those people who don't know, our book, Ready to Run, is full homage to Born to Run because it's that important a book. And I think as a way of starting this conversation more fo- formally, your books have been about the systems and about how robust and durable people are without this preciousness around how tolerant and how extraordinary people are.
2: It's a curious thing too, because you know, it's so vivid in my mind. You know, Born to Run was one of those flashbulb, like, fireworks, mushroom cloud experiences in my life where it was, like, before Born to Run and after border Run. So I, I remember a lot of the details very vividly. And I do remember, you know, sitting in my room, working for two years on this book and thinking, number one, if people don't buy this book, it's totally your fault. Like, it's my fault because the material <laughs> is effing truffles. Like, someone's given me, you know, auction-grade sashimi If it sucks, it's because you mangled it. That was my first thought, and my second thought was, how did I never notice stuff? Like, why did I never hear barefoot running? Why did I never hear minimalism? And I think that's where the elements came together. Like, there were all these various tribes out in the wilderness who knew what was going on, but no one knew. They were out in the wilderness. No one knew about them, and that was the the good fortune of Born to Run was I happened to be in a place where I had barefoot Ted, who's you know clearly, i will say, the most vocal. Of the barefoot advocates, Caballo Blanco, who's been living this for years in a canyon, the Tarumata, who have been living it for two thousand years, Eric Gordon, who did a masterful job of training. So, the beauty and the luck of that situation was—it was almost like Ocean's Eleven. Like you know, the gang got together for the perfect heist, and I was lucky to be there to hear all these voices at once.
1: Yeah, so I love that. And that actually sort of dovetails into a question I wanted to ask you. And I love hearing the backstory that you're like, if this book fails, it's only my fault. Um, But what do you think the secret sauce of that book was? Because it was so important to so many people, including us, and you obviously did get it right. And was it luck? Was it timing? Was it amazing writing skill? Was it editing? Like, or all of the above? I mean, we talk do you about your book to?
0: right now once a week at yeah. least. Like we, we are talking about the same thing. Like how did Chris pull that off?
2: Yeah. You know something? Honestly, I don't know. I thought I knew. <laughs> so I wrote Born to Run. And then I thought, okay, I've cracked the code. Not only do I know how to write a great nonfiction book, I know how to sell a great nonfiction book. I got this all figured out. And then I do Natural Born Heroes. And it's like, hey, if salt is good, more salt. You know, sugar is good. Double the sugar. And I felt like I overdid it. Like I overpacked that book with too much stuff. Like everything that I had learned about natural movement, it's all going in. And I think I overdid it. And I feel like the narrative, the adventure suffered for it. And I also didn't know how to sell it. Because with Born to Run, it became its own phenomenon so much that I felt like I was like the master ringleader. Like I was putting on these events and we're doing runs and talks and whatever I did was magic. And then I tried to reproduce that for Natural Born Heroes and it wasn't working because I then became, you know, professor Chris McDougall where I'm going to come out and lecture people for an hour about, you know, stuff I think they should know. It was like a 60-minute TED talk. So I tried to reverse that with running with Sherman and I feel like I did. I feel like I got back to the primal roots. But ultimately, man, I don't know. There is some magic alchemy that goes on that catches people's attention. So my guess with Born to Run is Where I was able to come at it from was, have you guys seen the film, uh, Britney Runs a Marathon?
1: Yeah. Yes.
2: Okay. And I think the filmmaker was genius for revisiting this. You see the same little moment again and again and again in the second half of the film where she's about to turn the doorknob and she's like, I don't know, dude, I'm wearing like gray champion sweats. I got my Chuckies on my feet. I'm not a runner. And she pauses and she's looking at that doorknob trying to get up the stones to turn the knob. And we see that one image again and again and again. I thought, that's the Born to Run audience right there. People who are afraid to try. And they just need a little bit of push to turn the knob. And so I think Born to Run spoke to those people.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was so impressive. You know, it could have such been a little niche book for you know this like very niche athletic population. And it just blew up and went so far beyond. I mean, it's cast such a wide net. It's just amazing. Amazing.
0: And as a personal story, the way you reflected with your wife's experience for a book – I was a heel striker my whole life and had knee pain running. I could sprint. Interesting. Didn't run. Didn't heel strike during sprinting because I was sprinting. I could do all of these other things. I was working with uh, a running coach who was a good friend, Brian McKenzie, who had taught me how to run. I knew Romanoff. I was doing these drills. But it wasn't until I read Born to Run, I literally put it down. I went outside. And I was like, oh. And I tried running. And I was like, this is what they meant. And it was a description that you had where I learned to run. And then
2: that year, I went and ran an ultramarathon, thanks to you. Interesting, because I would have supposed that you would have worked out all the schematics and the science first, and then applied it, as opposed to like, oh, here's a here's a fun story. Let's go. You know, like, it doesn't seem like you. You would, you would have had it all whiteboarded out, you know? I was doing all the technical
0: stuff. The story was the pin. And... What's so great. It's interesting that you felt like Natural Born Heroes was so different because that ended up being a favorite book for so many people. L- Laird Hamilton was the one who said to us, have you read my favorite, one of my favorite books of all time? And this is the favorite book. And I was like, oh, Chris's book? I can't believe I you know hadn't seen that. And it really is such a page turner. And what's cool about that? for you is that we have some friends who have discovered Maffetone through that book. And you really have led a lot of people tangentially. I don't think you had the same sort of immediate hot fire nuclear reaction, but that was a slow burn. And we have handed out so many copies of that book.
2: Thank you. You know, it's funny because here in Hawaii, there's a lot of military here. And I'll constantly bump into a guy and be chatting with them. and He's like, hey, by the way, man, I got buddies are Navy SEALs. Like, it's all they talk about is natural born heroes. They're obsessed with it. So I think there's like a little subculture out there. I like the fact that you and I are also driving each other's sales. Like I'm handing out copies of Ready to Run and Supple Leopard all over the place. You're doing Born to Run, Not So Born Heroes. But dude, you guys had the same situation with Supple Leopard. Like that took off like a freaking skyrocket. And I mean, did you anticipate that? It was the only thing of its kind, but it seemed like it was targeted to specialists. And yet I feel like everybody bought it.
1: Yeah, it went way beyond that. I mean, we had no idea. We thought for sure it would be like some physical therapists and CrossFit coaches who would buy that book. And it was, you know, I mean, as you know, it's a like $65, $69 textbook. Yeah. That's very dense. So no, we had no idea. Like you, I think it was a variety of factors. And some of that is probably just plain luck and timing. <laughs> so <laughs> having nothing to do with us.
2: Personally, I also keep buying that book and gifting it. And then thinking, okay, I'm bulletproof for life now. And then I'll get a little bit of tendinosis or a sprain in my ankle playing basketball. I'm like, oh shit, I got to kick out another 65 bucks.
0: <laughs> hey, you can call me. I know a
2: guy. Yeah, but you guys got the voodoo strap figured out. And like, I haven't seen anybody else make it that clear and that pointed. And I'm like, how do you do that again? Like, I thought i know it. So yeah, I'm driving that sales list for you too.
1: Yeah, it's not really a book that you read from start to finish. I think the best way to use that book is it's a it's like an encyclopedia. You so keep when you it have, in the freezer. Yeah, keep it in and the when freezer. Something hurts, yeah, put it on exactly. Whatever I mean, you it's, it's a it's a reference book for sure.
0: I think one of the things that you're you sort of hinted at, you know, is that you went to your second official big title, Natural Born Heroes, was such an adventure and a historical context and kind of bouncing back and forth. Your last book, which you, I got an advanced copy, I got a galley copy of that book. And then as I was reading it, I literally was live texting you as I was like crying on the airplane. And you're like, dude, you're live tweeting this book to me. Running with Sherman really brought you and your family and the context that humanized this total adventure. And I hope whatever you're working on next, you do the same thing. But I think that tees up for your experience. You were in this. You should tell us where you were a little bit because I want people to go out and find this because... This book particularly has been interesting in the pandemic where people have rediscovered their relationship to animals, right? They've rediscovered their need. As you were
2: talking, I was thinking to myself, that would actually be the greatest blurb of all time. Like, only have one blurb where we have one guy live tweeting you from a plane, chapter by chapter. Like, that's the blurb in the back of the book. You know, like, holy shit, I can't believe it, you know? He died. I don't, you know. So that would be really cool. So, yeah, let, let me give you background then.
1: Yeah. I mean, just to add to that really quick, Chris, I mean, I would love if you could just share sort of the backstory of Running with Sherman and add one quick thing, which is, you know, we are gigantic fans of all of your books, but I have to say, Kelly talks about Running with Sherman so much. And it actually really sort of changed our feeling in our relationship, even just with like our house pets. So I, if you could tell everybody this, the backstory of that book and a little bit about it, that would be awesome. It's such a great story.
2: It's interesting. I, I'm making connections here between Kelly and I because I have a feeling we probably have similar emotions, you know, and we're at the stage in our lives where expressing them, being comfortable with them is kind of a new thing. And that's probably why I spoke to you too, because we were probably both hitting that like, right, you know, that, that plateau.
1: I don't want to stop you, but Kelly, actually, and I have this ongoing joke now because I'm like, oh, are you feeling a feeling, baby? Like, are you feeling that thing? It's called a feeling. Oh. Okay. Yeah. So you're, you're exactly right, Chris. You're exactly being,
2: right. Uh, I think it's technically it's being vulnerable.
1: Well, whatever. It's feeling a feeling. Feeling a feeling.
2: We call that the V word. We don't even say it in my household. <laughs> <laughs> my daughter loves shows like The Bachelor. And as soon as somebody starts crying, I'm like, oh, I'm going to go get some chips or something. So, like, oh, yeah. Oh, he's showing an emotion. You got to leave the room. Like, yeah, he's <laughs> whinging. OK, so here's the background that led to that. So, yeah, I, mean, I came out of Italian Irish family from South Philadelphia, West Philadelphia. Typical upbringing, which is like you got in trouble. You cry to complain. You got double the punishment. So you learn, to, you know, kind of shut up and just take your licking and move on. I was an overseas correspondent for a bunch of years for the Associated Press. So you're kind of bouncing around a lot in high-pressure situations. Uh, The breaking point for me was actually covering the uh, massacres in Rwanda, um, which for a long time I just didn't didn't want to address. I didn't want to get into it at all because you just see a part of people that reflects back on you. You second-guess your own reactions. Was I compassionate enough? Did I do enough? Uh, It just a whole swirl of second guessing goes on after an experience like that. that is not comfortable. And most of all, it just makes you look around at the people around mm-hmm. you and think of them as like less. Uh, I think when you see the way it was unusual being a situation where suddenly there is no safe zone. Like, you know, we go through life and you kind of assume that everything's kind of okay. You're like, Hey, I'm in trouble. Call the cops. You know, I got a flat tire. Someone will probably pull over and help me. But then you're in a situation and it's, Curious because we're kind of in that in America now, where it's this horrible every man for himself. I don't care if I lie. I don't care if I cheat. I don't care if I'm cruel as long as I win, which to me was kind of not part of my upbringing. There was sort of a code that, yeah, you'll push, but you won't overstep. You know, you won't take advantage of the vulnerable. And then you're in a situation where they do it to such an extreme where children are, let's just say, to such an extreme. So after that, I decided I need to step away. I uh, moved back to Pennsylvania and started to do magazine freelancing in Philly, where I knew a lot of people, it's where I grew up. I had a lot of opportunities for stories. So it was a great feeding ground for me to pitch stories. But then when my wife and I had our first child, it was kind of cool being in Philly, but you know, we wanted this kid to be running around like in a yard, like barefoot and stuff. So we just went like full extreme the other way. We went from downtown Philadelphia, you know, literally like blocks from City Hall, to a place called Peach Bottom, Pennsylvania, which, you know, you got to like zoom in pretty hard on Google Maps to even find Peach Bottom. It's almost all Amish farms. All of our neighbors were Amish and Mennonite. My wife grew up in Honolulu, you know, so she was a, a local kid in the city, in all beaches, but had never been out of the country. So... Here we are on like a five acre farm or in a log home. Looks great on television, but in reality, it's like, holy shit, there's like an eight foot rat snake that just climbed into the roof. Like now what? You know, uh, <laughs> it's getting cold. We got to get firewood. Where do you get firewood? I don't know. You know, uh, how do you like to stove? I don't know. But that was our existence for almost 25 years. And year by year, we just loved it. Like everything that was a challenge became an adventure. It was fun. So our second daughter was born there, lived her whole life there. And then gradually, we just started to bring in animals. My wife discovered that she's lactose intolerant, but she can handle sheep and goat milk. That was one of the uh, lessons from our Amish neighbors. Uh, Anyone who's lactose intolerant, they just raise a sheep or raise a goat. So we began raising sheep and goats and chicken and geese and ducks. And then this sort of led us to the whole sort of click over point with Sherman. Taking care of a sheep is pretty easy. You basically just open the gate, let it eat grass, give it a bucket of water. Sheep is well-maintained. But then my daughter got this idea when she was nine. I say, hey, you know, your birthday's coming up. Like, what do you want? And she goes, a donkey. And a donkey was like a whole different thing. And I'm like, man, there's no way we're getting a donkey. It ain't happening. But I, I knew why she was excited because we had seen this woman one time in the woods on a hike riding a donkey up the trail with like a saddle and I and donkeys are rad donkeys are the best man everything you think you're gonna get from a dog you actually get from a donkey plus they're dogs plus because they're affectionate they're loyal they're fun but you can ride them you know so that's <laughs> so cool we saw this woman on the horseback and it also clicked in my mind like donkeys are kid-sized like donkeys are like kid-sized horses so I think in my nine-year-old's mind like man a horse is a freaking you know dinosaur but a donkey and that was what led us to Sherman. We're like, all right, let's, let's see if we can get this kid a, uh, a donkey. And, and off we went.
1: And where did you find Sherman? Like, how do you even go about finding? I mean, I realize I'm not living in Amish country. Maybe that's obvious. But if you're not, like, how do you go obtain a donkey?
2: No, no, there, there is no question you can ask, Juliet. It's not the same question I asked. Because again, we're, we're newcomers <laughs> to this world. And if you think you know it all, you got a lesson coming. So I did the same thing. Like, hey, where do you get a donkey? And people are like, not here, not in Pennsylvania. Maybe you know Colorado because they're they're mountain animals. You know, they're not working farm animals on the East Coast. Some asking around, asking around. People are giving me the hairy eyeball. Like, dude, you're you're so not from here. That's the way it went for a while until one of my neighbors, I kind of knew sort of third hand, came by the house one day and he said, uh, "Hey, yeah, I heard you're looking for a donkey. We have someone in our church. He's Mennonite. Uh, he has we have someone in our church that has a donkey. We need to get it out of his hands. He's a hoarder." And we need to fix this situation. And that's one thing I, I really love about the Amish and the Mennonites. They seem extremists, but they, they genuinely like walk the talk. So, by church, he doesn't necessarily mean like you know where we go to the building. His church means his community, his brothers and sisters in that community. And if someone needs help, it's the entire community's responsibility to help them out. And so they knew this guy was a hoarder. He was spending more on animal feed than he was spending on his family. The family was impoverished. And I'm like, man, sounds like a win all around, you know? Uh, this guy, <laughs> right? Crazy. So <laughs> Free donkey. This guy's not spending on feed. Everybody wins. And so me and the kids get in the truck, and we're following west out to this guy's house. We're excited. We're like, yeah, man, we're going to call it, what, Skull Crusher. Like, no, Zorro. Like, it's actually not bad. We get to the house. We go back to the barn. And we walk in the barn. And like as soon as you walk in, man, this is like pure Adams Family. Like y- Your heart starts to sink. Like, this is really gloomy. This can't be good. We're walking through muck inside the barn. It's like over our boot tops. We're looking around like, I don't see any donkey. And then we look in the back of this one stall, like in like this literal dungeon. And this thing is like mucking through like knee-deep rotten straw and mud. Oh, wow. And it just looks like death oh my god like that's my kid's birthday present and my daughters were just (laughs) right hey happy birthday so but my daughters were just like dumbstruck the three of us are just staring at this thing my first thought was like okay well this is not our donkey but then my second thought was like we're definitely we're not leaving it here like it's coming out of here and that was it so we we told wes um yeah tell tell this guy we'll take it so he, he pulls the guy aside, and then the guy's like, nah, I'm not so sure. I don't think so. And I'm like telling Wes, dude, you can tell him whatever you want, but there is no way that donkey is staying here. It's coming out. Either you let him out or we're calling the cops, but he's coming out. Wes talks to the guy, and I love this. So, you know, Wes is, is a truly good person. He's honest in the way that none of the rest of us are. Like, he will tell you the truth kindly, no matter what it is. But now he's going to talk to this guy who is mentally imbalanced. The truth ain't going to work. So Wes comes up with, I thought, the most flexible version of the truth. He says to this guy, hey, here's what we're going to do. Chris is going to take the donkey just for two years. Take him for two years, fix him up, get him healthy, let you catch up on your finances. Then after two years, we'll see what happens. I'm like, yeah, Wes, you are, you are quite the bullshitter. Uh, but that works. I worked. We were able to get the donkey that way. But then it began this whole thing of like, I didn't realize how sick this thing was until it actually showed up at our door the next day.
1: Right. So not only have you like gotten a donkey and you have to figure out how to take care of a donkey, but now you have to figure out how to rehabilitate a donkey. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, like where did you even start? Sword. Did you type in like rehabilitate a donkey into Google?
2: No. So here's the thing about it. So there's again that when that impact moment. So we told Wes, it's got to come out of here, Wes, one way or the other. He's like, okay, look, we'll be there tomorrow. So the next day, you know, I think he said he'd be there by eight. It's 11 o'clock. There's no West yet. And then the, uh, the truck pulls up and there's a hay wagon behind it. And I see that there's a, an animal in the back. He opens up the gate and then we look in the back and realize, oh shit, this thing can't walk. Like it's hooves were so overgrown. They looked like sleigh runners, you know, they're like, like, uh, diving fins. And this thing is kind of splayed out on these long, like curled up hooves. I'm like, what the hell? So, uh, we managed to kind of, Ease it off, sort of carry it off. And then as we're doing this, my, my mind is racing, like, what do we do? Like, what's the next step here? And in my mind, I thought, I only know one person with a donkey. It was that lady in the woods. I don't know who she is. I don't know her name. So we get her off the donkey, off the truck, West leaves, and I go inside, and I call another neighbor. I say, hey, you know, we saw this woman in the woods riding a donkey, Like, and that's as far as I had to go. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. You and want, you want Lori, yeah, she's right around the corner. Like, apparently, in farm country, if you're a woman – riding a donkey in the woods. Like everybody knows who you are, you know, so. <laughs> Seems reasonable. She was a donkey woman. So yeah, they gave me her number and that was it. Gave her a call. She was over there like in a heartbeat. And then just like this became her personal rehabilitation project. She just dug right in.
0: Well, Jill and I were in New York not so long ago before the pandemic with our kids. What we noticed was that there was a culture of people who had dogs and they would bring their dog to the hotel and the dog ended up being a surrogate reason to interact. That people had, uh, it was like a, a connection where people could talk about dogs or you could reach the dog and people were just looking for interaction and connection. And I just, I'm um, sort of struck by this animal suddenly just mobilizes an entire community around it. And suddenly you're making connections around it. And the way you're acting, there's a story you talk about in the book, I think is so important because I think in context of COVID and people getting so many dogs and feeling self-soothing, you kind of pondered why you thought Amish people were still using horses. Do you remember that story Mm -hmm. while they were still, would you talk about that? What you kind of rationed out there?
2: Yeah. Although I'm really intrigued by your observation too. I had never thought of that, uh, I have a friend, Alexandra Horowitz. She is a psychologist who specializes in, in canine thinking. She actually wrote a book called "What What a Dog Thinks." And she did a column for the New York Times once, where she just kind of eavesdropped, like at the dog park, to like what people were saying to their dogs. And it was actually pretty humorous. She's like it was conversations, like Billy, if you do it again, you're not going to get. Your, I told you, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but I think what's interesting is you're making me think. I wonder if those conversations were not designed to be overheard, you know, that you're opening my eyes to the fact that maybe people get a dog so that that becomes an access point to them from other people. And I wonder if a dog is also not a way for you to air things that you actually kind of want people to hear and respond to. But in New York, you can't just say to somebody like I have a problem. Anyways, it's very interesting. They become this. Yeah, this is avenue to contact. But to your point, so, you know, it's funny, when I first moved out to Amish country from Philly, and every once in a while, i go back to the city. I was working at Philadelphia Magazine then. Uh, I would go back, and people would talk to me about the Amish. They're like, oh, yeah, man, they're so cruel, they're animals. So I'm like, really? Like, I, I don't see it. Oh, yeah, yeah, they beat their horses to death. You know, we saw it on something. I was like, really? Again, I've never seen this. So I thought, okay, well, you know, maybe I'm new. Maybe these people in Philly know more about my neighbors <laughs> than I do, even though I see them every day. But maybe I'm missing something. And it took a while before I could definitively say they were dead wrong. And, and the catalyst moment was I bumped into a guy. we were picking up a ram that we were borrowing. We got to this guy's farm, an Amish guy, and he had a bunch of uh, used split rail fence just lying in a pile. And I said, hey, man, can I buy it from you? And he gave me a great deal on used split rail, which is super expensive stuff. It was hundreds of rails. So I had to make a lot of trips in my truck every morning for like a week. And every day I went at the same time, I would go six in the morning because I wanted to be off the road before the cops were out because this is like an unsafe uh, unsafe load. So I would go six in the morning, load up a bunch of fence rail and then drive it home. And every day I went there, this guy was in the same spot, cup of coffee, elbows on the side of the fence, sipping his coffee, just looking at his horses. Sun's coming up, looking at his horses. And I started to chat with him every morning when I came by. And he goes, I just love this. I just love watching him. And that's when it clicked, this conception that people have that if you make an animal work, you are therefore abusive was really misguided. This man loved and respected his work animals the way he loved and respected his work mates in the shop. He treated them well. He admired and respected it. And I think for him, it was a moment of Zen where he is connecting and it was bringing him peace and that's when the wheels began to turn in my mind. Of like, it's so easy to marginalize a group like the Amish, like ah, oh, you know, those old throwback dudes in their in their black pants and their long dresses. But then you start to dig in a little bit, and you realize, huh, there's a culture in America that has three percent obesity, that is nonviolent, that uh, has almost no crime rate, has only one recorded homicide in their entire history in the United States that has close, cohesive families that does not burn fossil fuels, like, hey, they sound great. Who are those guys? They're the Amish. And I started thinking, you know what? Again, we think that we can outsmart the world. You know, we'll, we're we're SpaceX, man. We're we're going to Mars. And like the Amish like, well dude, we got a pretty nice place right here
0: if you just don't mess it up. You know, Julie and I are really struggling or, or wrapping our heads around sort of this gigantic environment organism sort of- Mismatch. 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 Right, I think, is that a Lieberman term? That's a
1: Lieberman term. Yeah.
0: And, you know, what we're seeing is that people have just moved so far away from what it means foundationally to be human. Sleep, walk, have good relationships. Interact eat, with animals. Right, eat food. <laughs> and uh-huh. I feel like one of the missing pieces for you, it, it's interesting because it's, I'll talk about it in a second, it's come up with some other things, but this interaction with animals I think it was you who said EO Wilson noted that it was going against our evolutionary psychology not to be with an animal. Is that right?
2: Yeah. I think the myopia we get is that whatever we're doing in 2021 is the best. You know, like we've progressed always upward. And then you think, no, actually, and Eo Wilson was a guy yeah, maybe you should circle back a little bit because a lot of times speeding forward, you leave stuff behind you that you actually really need. And you know, what he pointed out was that for the overwhelming majority of human existence, up until the internal combustion engine became a form of transportation, which is very, very recent. You know, it's only in the past like, you know, say a hundred years that cars became pretty universal. Prior to that, you always use animals for transportation. You could never travel too far from your source of food because there was no way there were no trucks, you couldn't get the food there. So you lived close to animals for both meat and for eggs and also uh for for farming, and there's, you know, the the idea of raising animals and raising crops were hand in hand. You you fertilized your soil with the animal waste. So you lived near animals. Animals were your companions. They were your transportation. And if you did not live near animals and understand them, then you were basically in trouble. You would not live very long. So for years, so when you think about it, you know, I, I love the hypothesis that, you know, the first humans who domesticated cats and dogs really depended on them. Like, You know, it wasn't like we were the strong ones. We weren't like, you know, Conan bringing in the pet wolf. Like, no, the wolf had everything figured out. Like, the wolf didn't need us at all. Wolf's doing fine out there. We were lucky that the wolf decided, hey, you know what? Let's take pity on these like naked bipedal, you know, weaklings apes. Yeah. Yeah. Who were wandering around chasing the deer and getting nowhere. Let's let's partner up with them. Because if we had not partnered up with wolves who became our early trackers, our nighttime security, our best hunters, um, if we hadn't partnered up, up with them, human history might have taken a much more sort of tragic trajectory. I was just in
0: Zimbabwe last week, and uh, I was on this, as one does. <laughs> he was does. on a fantasy man <laughs> trip, on fan, Chris. was a fantasy man kayaking trip, and, uh, but I went to a local homestead, which wasn't a tourist homestead. It was a local homestead working farm, and we were talking about, well, how do you manage elephants? Because the elephants coming through and ripping through the this farm – 14 people live on this homestead and they have no means of making revenue to buy things. They have to raise goats and then, you know, if they're going to sell something. But they're all 100% self-contained. And so if an elephant goes through and rips through their garden, it's a real problem. And they were like, oh, this is why we have dogs because the dogs scare everything else away. And once again, I was like, "Oh Chris is on it, man if you you know you have a dog, you, you know you can sleep a little bit, you know you know there were a couple feral cats, and they were just like yeah it helps with all the rodents you know and and I was like, man, these cats living in Africa are bad, bad cats. I mean these are amazing yeah,
1: cats. how long do you think our cat would survive there mm, seconds <laughs> <laughs>
0: so, you know I you know as we've sort of moved away from sort of our you know ourselves, I thought that the framework for this was a good reminder that Putting in context how important these relationships are, one of our friends, John Berardi, had, um, he famously had a nutrition client who was really struggling to lose weight. And what Drawn said was, why not you get a dog? Just get a dog. And the guy's like, okay, I got a dog. And he's like, well, how's it going? He's like, I lost weight. I haven't done anything yet. And just by getting a dog, he had an excuse to go out and walk had an excuse to see his neighbors. He had an excuse to just leave the house. And sometimes, you know, it just can be that circuit. And I think you tied so many aspects of that together. Beautiful book.
2: You know, it's funny. So near where I live, there's this crazy, I call him devil dog, Maka. And uh, whenever I see Maka from like 100 yards away, he'll see me, I'll see Maka. It's not my dog. It's a, it's a neighbor's dog. And I go, Maka! And this dog takes off like a shot. He just comes galloping at me. and He's like wiggling. I'm like, you know what? That little dog just like, Injected as full syringe of like joy into my heart because he's so happy about everything, and I think that to um, that guy's point about the dog is whatever else was going on that was fueling the the weight problem. You know, maybe it was anxieties, maybe your therapy, eating, whatever else. This creature brought something of happiness, and again, a thing that you can't underestimate. I was looking at it, looking at evolutionary history when you had. You know, so feral cats are night creatures. They're nocturnal. So they have super acute hearing and eyesight, night vision. And so if you're in a exposed area, like in a Zimbabwe homestead, and that cat is purring and relaxing, it's telling you that there is nothing within your perimeter that's a threat because the cat would be otherwise up. So if the cat's relaxed, you can relax because that that cat is hearing stuff that you can't hear. And so even now to this day, you bring a cat into a cancer ward, or a children's ward where kids are struggling with, with chronic illness, you give them a cat and the cat purrs, like that's medicinal, man. That's, that's pain relief in a furry form, just because I think we are hardwired evolutionarily to get a sense of contentment from our contact with these creatures. So ready.
1: one uh, one quick side story is we have this black cat named King Louis who literally sleeps on my pillow, touching my head, and like I fall asleep and we're holding hands and he's purring. He's like my emotional support cat. Yeah. So I really resonate with that. So I don't want to... And, s- and
0: wait, the second you're gone?
1: Phew, yeah, when I fall asleep, he bails. Like he waits until I fall asleep and then he bails. So he knows that that's his job. Anyway, so... I think everyone listening to this podcast should read all of your books, including Running with Sherman. But can you give us a quick, and I have a bunch of other non-Running with Sherman questions to ask you, but um, what happened with Sherman? I know he was rehabilitated. And is he still alive?
2: Yes. Yes, he is. And, you know, it's funny because when I was on book tour... Living his best life, champion. Oh, he's doing amazing. I know. I feel like he should be King Sherman now, like a little jaunty <laughs> crown on his head. But, you know, it's funny because I think that in the book, you know, you realize how dire his circumstances are. So I would go on book tour and I would do a talk and then people would ask me questions. And often like the first question people would ask you is, they'd be very, they'd be very apologetic. they think go, is Sherman, Sherman dead? I'm like, dude, like, why are you killing Sherman in your brain? No, Sherman's awesome. <laughs> Our COVID story was, as much as I like living among the Amish, they are also not the best about masking, distancing and vaccinating. So when, When the stuff started coming down um, during those first few months of COVID, I'm like, you know what? We live 30 miles from the nearest hospital, surrounded by people who don't drive. If they get sick, my phone's going to ring. Can you take our sick grandmother to the hospital? If we get sick, there's no one to take us to the hospital. And I thought, man, we should really get out of here for a while. And I thought, you know what? My wife's been trying to go back to Hawaii for 25 years. This is where she grew up. This might be the moment. So like that in six weeks, man, we just bugged out. So our first question was, well, what are we going to do with the animals? Like we got to rehome them. So we call our farrier, Leslie, this like, you know, saint of a woman who trims the donkey's hooves. And I said, Leslie, do you know anybody that you totally trust who can take three donkeys? Because we're not separating them. And she's like, yeah, this guy, like, I'll take him. She's got a 150-acre farm. She had five other donkeys. Like, can you handle three more donkeys? She's like, dude, I can handle a freaking circus. So she brought in the three animals. And they're looking around like, wait, we just upgraded from five crappy acres behind McDougall's house to 150 with heated stalls and heated water. So Sherman basically gave me the hoof and said, all right, dude, you know, smell you later. So that's where they are now. The three of them are together, uh, tromping around, having a good time. We gave the sheep to my daughter's best friend, goats to an Amish neighbor, cats to an Amish neighbor. And then in a matter of six weeks, we sold the farm and, and headed for Hawaii. There's a side note of running with Sherman that I want to just
0: brush up on. You do such a wonderful job of, of like having an adventure in your books. Like they're all about you sort of having an adventure. You your whole family comes along with this one. Ultimately, without giving the whole story away, there's a big running race in Leadville. Can you talk about what that is and how Sherman ran that race?
2: Yeah. So, you know, this woman, Tanya, our savior from the woods, you know, who rides around horseback. And I think you have the mental image anyone who's willing to ride through the woods on a donkey in Pennsylvania it's a pretty tough customer. You know, she's pretty sweet, but you don't mess around with Tanya. And Tanya is the one that kind of just bullied me into, like, you better find this animal a job. You can't just stick him out in the field with a bow on his tail. He needs a purpose. I'm like, oh, all right, Tanya. <laughs> and I'm like, what, what, what purpose? Like, what job? I don't have a job for a donkey. But I did remember the burrow races in Colorado. And what, what I love about this is I think at first blush, you look at burrow races and you think, okay, here's another little novelty, you know, goofy little thing. But actually, this, this race is, to me, like the purest expression of an animal-human partnership. Because you're not going to make a donkey do anything. Either you understand the donkey, and he's on your team, or you're done. He ain't going. There's a reason Mary rode a donkey into Bethlehem and not a horse. Exactly. You know what? Exactly. She knew she's heading into a firestorm. She wanted a donkey underneath her. But, but there's, there's actually something about that, though, too, is donkeys have that reputation throughout history, throughout mythology. Stubborn but reliable. If a donkey signs on, you know you're safe. A horse will do whatever you tell it. A donkey has got to be down with the pro- donkey's got to sign off first before you make you know any forward progress. So the old prospectors knew this. Like when the, when the prospectors went into the mountains, they didn't want a horse because you could force a horse to do something stupid. Um, but a donkey, if you're on a pass and the, the footing is tricky, the donkey will sniff it out. And if it's not safe for the donkey, donkey will just stop. No matter how much you smack, he's like, I ain't doing it. So. These burrow races are throwbacks to the old prospector tradition of running alongside your donkey. When you you would strike a claim in the mountains, you'd run into town, register the claim, it was yours. So to this day, people will run races of 15 to 29 miles side by side with a donkey. So, you know, if it's a Sunday morning and it's a race and you want to run a donkey to run 29 miles, like you better hope that the donkey did not have other plans for the day. Otherwise, he do not care, it's a race. You know, he ain't going. But these guys, these these people who do this to this day, are not only superb mountain athletes. I mean, these are banging out like three-hour and 20-minute marathons at 12,000 feet. They're great athletes. But beyond that, they've invested years of training and working with the animals so that you watch the best burrow race. There's a woman named Barb Dolan. You watch her, and this is like a full-on partner. This is like, you know, two paddlers in a kayak and are just totally in sync. Barb barely even t- She'll make a little noise and the donkey's, oh, oh okay, turn right. You know? So I, I love the fact that not only have they trained their bodies, but they have partnered with these animals to perform this great, great team. And yes, Chris just said the name of the donkey was barbarian. Just so we're clear.
1: Uh, okay. So Chris, I'm going to take this in a little bit of a different direction. The context is that I just started reading Matthew McConaughey's book, Green Light's Randomly, I'm like halfway through. And then when I was preparing for this, I was like, oh, Born to Run is being made into a movie with Matthew McConaughey. So I would love to hear more about that and how that came about and anything you can tell us about that project, because that's cool.
2: Well, Matthew, if you're listening, (laughs) call me. Now, that's gone through some weird permutations. So he was early on, you know, there was a producer who was friendly with Matthew McConaughey. He read, oh, actually, I think he was already a barefoot runner. There's like, pictures of him running around Vibram five fingers. But that just kind of dissolved. It like, didn't happen. And so now it's gone into the hands of another producer, a guy named Chris Bender, the guy who did The Hangover, all the uh, American Pie movies. He is a minimalist runner and sort of diehard Born to Run fan. So he's now currently working to turn it into a TV series. But the movie, which would have had you know Matthew McConaughey, unfortunately just never worked out. <laughs> I know, right? So you and I sometimes jump on the
0: phone we have these wide ranging conversations about like how do kids games teach kids fundamental skills. Like we just, you are one of my favorite nerds. I can't help that think that you are also currently thinking, working on something else. And I think you have, you wrote to Lisa, big waves, deep bruises and the occasional shark. What are you working on these days? Yeah, What are you working on? Because and, and- I, I actually can't wait to go on the next adventure with you. I mean, it's really remarkable to just be, you know, a voyeur on your sort of crazy, manic, deep,
2: sensitive brain? Like, what are you doing? It's kind of cool because now that you, you mentioned that, like, oh yeah, I do remember that email. Like, that was kind of a cool email. You sort of dashed it off. You realize afterwards, oh yeah, that was kind of a cool thing to say. But I kind of forgot about it. Uh, and it is true that you, when you and I talk, just like that comment you made about the dogs, I think we like trigger things in each other. Like, I go this far, you say something, takes me to this level, this level. So I love the way... We kind of like walk the stairs together, you know, <laughs> yes. trigger, trigger ideas. So, yeah, in short, and this would be really cool, man, if we like rope layered into this. It's, it's way below his pay grade. But basically what, what I'm interested in is body surfing. So I came to Hawaii and I look around, I don't see anybody body surfing. I think I'm the best body surfer. I think I'm state champion, you know, because <laughs> I go got a little wave and I dive onto it like you do Jersey, you know, Jersey Shore style. And I just like plank out. And ride it into the sand. And I think I'm awesome. And I was talking to this guy. I, there's a pickup basketball game here on Sunday mornings. I'm talking to this guy. He's like 65 years old. And he mentioned he's up body surfing at Pipeline. I'm like, you're body surfing at Pipeline? He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, 65. I'm like, how do you do that? He's like, oh, yeah, you just do it. So he took me out to this place called Sandy Beach, which is like a notorious surf spot here because it's got a really tight break. Anyway, he took me out there. I just got manhandled. I mean, I came home bloody and bruised. And I realized that there are body surfers out there, but they're on these little secluded breaks where they don't have to compete with surfers. And what they're doing is such an art form. And now I've spent a year working on this, and I'm still like baby pool level. Like I'm still below beginner. And that's what I'm intrigued by because it, it brings into mind lots of things, breath holding, the body's relationship with the water, the body's relationship with itself. Because what I love are these moments when you have to execute a function and you don't have time to think. Either you know it and you have it right, and your hand understands your foot, or it's disaster. I was watching a video recently about Laird's iconic wave that at Te- Tehopu where the uh, the jet ski tower. Looked over his shoulder to say to Laird, hey, man, don't cast this one. And realize Laird had already let like, go of the rope. He's already on it, you know. And someone does like a breakdown. And they go, it's a weird thing. Like, Laird is dragging his right hand in the water. Like, everybody drags the left. But somehow Laird knew instinctively he needed to drag the white, the right hand so he wouldn't get sucked in. And to me, like, that's what it is. Like, in that moment, you're doing something you've never done before. But your body, from head to toe, is so synthesized; it knows how to compensate, how to move. And you watch his posture on that too. This dude is in such a low crouch, like his butt cheek is on his right heel, and his knee is like nose level. And but this guy has this perfect posture. But he's not processing; it. it's happening. So anyway, that's what I'm working on. I'm working on an exploration of body surfing. With these OG old school dudes, I'm out of point panics, I'm going to Pipeline, I'm going to Sandy's, and just trying to figure out this thing, man. Yeah.
1: So I don't really want to speak for Laird, but interestingly, we just watched the 100-foot wave documentary about Garrett McNamara and surfing the 100-foot wave in Portugal. And there's actually a section in that documentary where Laird is interviewed and he specifically says he thinks of himself as a surfer and that that includes all forms of surfing, including body surfing. So, you know, I don't know if you remember that little set or if you've seen that documentary yet, but he specifically sort of thinks of himself as like a full waterman and a surfer of all kinds, including body surfing. And let me just jump in with a little funny... Body surfing with
0: Laird anecdote, as one does. We were out <laughs> working on an event with them, and we went to his favorite spot, which is called Lumohai, which literally means like death by broken back in the sand because you sucked at body surfing. <laughs> that's what the that's what the translation is. And the Kai is there. It's the mist from the beach, and this it's really a remarkable place. So we're body surfing, and I'm getting shacked and taken off, and I come back in. I'm like, did you see that? And she's like, you know what? That, yeah. She's like you're just not as good as Laird in the body surf.
1: Yeah, I did say that. I did. And it, she's like I, Laird would take of, off and
0: everything, and it I was came like came out of
1: my mouth before I realized how truly preposterous it was. Know,
0: I was like, did you just compare me, <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: body surfing to Laird Hamilton? And it really is your whole body is you know is a surface. It all matters. I think it's it's so accessible, and I can't wait to hear what comes out of this thing because uh, it's really uh, the few times I've, I've body surfed in my life have been they're transformational. And scary because you end up with your feet touching your face the wrong
2: way. Exactly. Like your feet is where your head's supposed to be. They call it getting scorpions. You know, scorpion, your, your legs are flying over your back. And you know, it's funny, it's place, Sandy Beach. You're sitting on the beach and you're like, oh, it's so pretty. Oh, look at these guys. They're just so effortless. They're just cutting diagonally across the wave. And then you go out there and you see a wave and you turn to catch. And you're like, "Holy! the beach is right there. Like, how do you, <laughs> if you catch the wave, you are facing down sand. Like, how do you not get killed? And I haven't discovered that yet. But you know, it's a cool thing. So, you know, you talk about the 100-foot waves. So there's a dude named Kalani Latanzi who body surfs at Nazare. There's a little video. It's called uh, Kalani, uh, Gift of God. And you watch this dude. Like He's doing like a, a four-minute breath hold to get under the foam of the wave that just broke. And people are looking at him like, he's dead. There's no way. And this guy will get on like a 50-footer. And he's like, woo. <laughs> He's over in Maui. I'm like, I'm waiting. I just want to get a little bit less awful before I even talk to these guys. Like, there's no way. There's no way on at gunpoint am I reaching out to Laird. To ask this question, I'm just way too, way too low. But when I get up there, I think Howley
0: means without breath. That's what it means, like, <laughs> right? Because the white people would come in and not honor the ocean with a uh, with a breath. So I think that's what you know. So you can work on that. You can work on your breath hold too. That's me.
1: I'm definitely watching that video of the Nazare body surfer though. Immediately after this, wow,
0: it's crazy. How is your family dealing with the relocation? Because there's this thing in Hawaii called Ohana, but really is like family. You know, you are really. I feel like from what I know about you and the few times we've met, like your family is really important to you. How has your family made the transition?
2: Yeah, you know, it's been a crazy adventure. And sometimes I look at it as a series of mistakes. And sometimes I look at it as a series of things to be proud of. So so we first got here and it was, we, we were really hurried because we wanted our daughter, who was going to be a junior in high school, to have time to transition to a new school. She got here, but they were still doing school virtual here, even in Hawaii. So she's like, "Matt, I'm a stranger in a room. Nobody knows me. No one's calling on me. She goes, I want to keep doing school back in Pennsylvania. I'm like, good luck, champ. That means 2 a.m. till 9 a.m. She's like, no, I'm good. So I said, okay, I'll tell you what. If you're going to soldier it out from 2 a.m. till 9 a.m., if things get safe, we'll find a way for you to go back in person. Thinking this is a pretty safe hand I'm playing because there's no way there's no way to be a vaccine. It's not going to happen. So she guts it out, man. August until April, 2 a.m. till 9 a.m. And then she's volunteering with this uh, aid organization that she volunteers with from like 9 a.m. till 11. And then she's hitting the beach. I'm like, holy cow. I try to get up with her a couple nights in a row. I'm like, forget it. You know, you're on your own. So then in April, when thing when we were, got vaccinated early on, we were able to get vaccinated here as far back as February. And then we contacted the school say, hey, man, do you guys know any houses to rent? And like, yeah, we actually have a house that we rent out to teachers. It's right across the street. And so, unfortunately, I had to come good on my promise. So we were able, last April, to go back with my daughter and uh, let her go to school live. But then my wife and I were doing like, you know, rock, paper, scissors. Like, well, who's going with her? Like, not me, not me. (laughs) So right now, we're sort of tag teaming it. We're going two months at a time. So my wife did, last year was six weeks, and I did six weeks, and we all came back. So my wife is there right now with my daughter. And then October 14th, she comes back. And then I go back over there and then I'll be there until Christmas. So, and then my my oldest daughter took a year off. So she had like the dream gap year. She was working at a coffee shop slash tattoo parlor by day and then surfing all afternoon, just bombing around Oahu in a Jeep looking for surf surf breaks. So some ways I feel like, you know, having my daughter go back to school in Pennsylvania, it, it has kind of physically pulled us apart. But I think spiritually it's pulled us together because... She did her part, and she got the benefit. We made a promise, and we came good on the promise. It's hard to be apart, but it's great when we come back together. So it's one of those elastic pulls that I feel has really, like, showed the bond. And it kind of sucks, but in some ways, I'm kind of proud. I'm super proud of my daughter. I Man, I cannot believe she did that. So, yeah, that's where we are now. So right now, I'm, like, living bachelor, sink full of dirty dishes, body surfing all day, eating playing lunch, you uh, know, but two more weeks, and then, you know the piper comes due. I got to go to Pennsylvania. Amazing.
1: (laughs) Amazing. Well, Chris, this has been such a pleasure. I feel like we could talk to you for another three hours. Um, But I just want to thank you so much. And if you could just tell our audience where they can find you, obviously, we'll link to all of your books, Born Around Natural Born Heroes and Running with Sherman. But where else can they find you, follow you, learn more about what you're working on?
2: Yeah. So I got a website, com. There's a email center there. You know, I'm kind of iffy about answering questions, a ton of questions about what shoes people should buy, but if there's a genuine heartfelt, you know, I kind of stray away from those, but there's a genuine heartfelt people looking for guidance or advice or a coach, you know, if I can steer them in good direction. Yeah. Just look on and and go from there. That's awesome. the equivalent
0: of me saying, I don't want to talk about why your shoulder hurts. I really love that. I'm going to yeah. use that a million times. Chris, it is great to see you. We can't wait to get back to Hawaii and and run into you. Thank you so much, my friend.
2: That was so fun, guys. Thanks a lot.
0: Thank you for listening to the Ready State Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, check out all our episodes here or at thereadystate.com. And be sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes to help others find our show.
1: Check us out and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at State. Until next time. Cheers everyone.
0: You got it.